guest today on the Circle of Competence podcast is Monish Pabrai. Monish is the founder of Pabrai Investment Funds, Dondo Holdings, and is the author of The Dondo Investor, The Low-Risk Value Method to High Returns, as well as the book Mosaic, Perspectives on Investing. Monish is a prolific reader, writer, investor, and most importantly, a passionate philanthropist. And I've learned a tremendous amount studying his books, interviews, and past investments. And today I'm honored to get the chance to interview him and talk shop. Monish, thanks for coming on and welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. Benton, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, I'm looking forward to our hour together. Absolutely. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar with the background prior, your background prior to starting Pabrai Funds, can you just give a two-minute sketch of, of leading up to, uh, to starting your fund business? Well, you know, I, uh, I didn't work in the industry before the fund started, and uh, I, uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't go to business school also. I, I went to uh, Harvard kind of a week at a time later, uh, but uh, I didn't go to business school uh, before the fund started uh, either. And, um, and, uh, but, but I accidentally heard about Warren Buffett uh, when, I, when I was about 30 years old. And uh, I was very intrigued with his uh, approach to investing, mainly because I didn't see what little I knew about the industry follow that approach. And uh, so I said, it's kind of strange. You have a guy who's hit it out of the park, who's got a set of principles, which all seem to make very strong sense to me, but not, not too many mutual funds uh, follow this approach and their results reflected that uh, the results weren't that great either. And so, um, so I thought uh, I would uh, give it a try with my own personal uh, money. Uh, I I was running an IT company then. I sold uh, a, a portion, uh, some assets, and after taxes, I had about a million dollars, which was kind of extra money. And so I said, okay, we'll uh, uh, try to see what we can do with these with this asset using Buffett's approach, and uh, it worked really well. And then uh, about five years later, um, Bri Funds was born. And uh, went from there. Buffett has a has a famous quote, and, and I don't apologies if I butcher it, but it's something along along the lines of you know running a business helps you be a better investor, and investing helps you be a better business uh, man or woman. And so I'm curious if if your experience you know as an entrepreneur prior to starting Pabri Funds, how did that help you view industries and businesses from an investment standpoint? Yeah, so uh, I think the quote is, I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. Uh, so I think, I think having a, a firsthand, uh, firsthand experience with running a business, meeting payroll, finding customers, scaling, et cetera, um, is, in my opinion, really fundamental. Uh, to being a good investor. There, so there was a recent interview that you gave with the Investors Podcast, big fan of, of Stig and Preston's work. And you talked about uh, the about um, your mapping, so your internal mapping. Actually, I think this was with, uh, with, this was on a different interview that you gave recently, but you talked about your internal mapping and how you sort of figured out that you were better suited for investing than running a company of 160 people. 
was I want to hear about what that transition was like from running your IT consulting business and learning all of the the pieces of business from the ground up to you know a solitary fun type business where you're studying and reading and thinking a lot. What was that transition like, and how did you figure out that internal mapping per se? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, I think that. Um, you know, um, mo- all of us, all of us are different from each other. Uh, between our genetics and the first five years, five or six years of our life experience, uh, basically we have uh, we have uh, unique uh, personality traits and uh, unique uh, kind of. Uh, templates of who we are, and uh, that template of who we are uh, will not change from the age of five to ninety-five. So you know we may think that we can change and so on, uh, but those uh, those traits are pretty hard coded. And uh, the problem most humans have is uh, they don't know. Uh, what the inner map of what their what their uh, core traits are they don't know those and the reason they don't know those is because we don't show up in this on this planet with the owner's manual right and and the th- the thing is that there's a uh, strong societal pressure to conform to the world uh, so the world expects you to act a certain way and uh, you know you're told these are acceptable behaviors and the ways to act and the ways to kind of go about your life and we normally conform most of us conform to those and um, that can lead and it does lead to a distortion between what our inner map is and how we might be behaving externally uh, so uh, for example, in in my case, I went through um, I went through this um, um, uh, extensive psychological testing with a couple of industrial psychologists. Uh, they did uh, they did a they had me take a bunch of tests. Uh, they did three sixty interviews with my spouse, my friends, with my employees, um, and uh, and at the end of all of that, they interviewed me and. They came up with what I call my owner's manual, and um, and I went through this I think 21 years, almost 22 years ago, and uh, uh, it's an invaluable document. Actually, it really was very helpful. And one of the things they said to me at the time, this was in '99, was uh, I was running this 160-person um, IT company, and I actually had no interest in the company. I had lost all interest in. Uh, going to work, and usually when that happened to me, I would just resign and you know hit the reset button. And this time when it happened to me, uh, there was nobody to resign to. It was my business, and uh, I'm supposed to be excited about my business, you know. And um, and so they said, uh, we don't even know how you. Uh, are handling this, you know, because it's so far away from your inner map. And what they said, my inner map was that uh, the key 
key part related to my professional life was that I like to play games, mostly mathematical games. Uh, but those games have a couple of traits. Uh, one of the traits is that uh, they are single player games. So I'm not a guy who is a great person to put on a soccer team, for example. Okay. Uh, baseball, actually, I would say, uh, even though it's a multiplayer game, there are a lot of aspects to it which are single player oriented. I mean, in the sense that if you're a pitcher or a slugger or whatever, you know, the thing is that you're you're a specialist in those positions and you try to hone your Yeah, no, I can I can relate. I, I think that's probably why I picked uh, the pitching position. I love to quote unquote control the game. So I, I can relate a little yeah. bit. Uh, but but definitely they say that I'm a single player kind of game player and I like to play mathematical games, but I also like to play mathematical games that I know I can win. Uh, so it's, they said that's that's your kind of core map and what you're actually doing at work, which was my IT company was herding cats. I had a bunch of direct reports, office politics, a lot of different issues, HR issues. Um, and when I started the business, when I started that IT business uh, about uh, eight years before that, it, it was a single player game and it was heavily a mathematical because I had converted it into a math game in terms, in terms of how do you find clients, you know, a process for doing that and how do we do this? And, and basically I was, uh, the game I was playing was, can I make this business grow and scale? And it was really exciting to give, give something shape that didn't exist. And it was, I was very excited about about the business as it grew, even up to 30, 40 people. Um, but then when it started to get beyond that is uh, when it started to become less fun. And, and it just continued to become less and less fun uh, as it grew. And uh, so at that time in 99, I think February or March of 99, I was thinking of starting for Bri Funds. And I was not happy with the going to work. And when the psychologists learned about what I was planning to do for Bryfan, they said, that actually is perfect for you. Uh, that new venture that you're trying to start, check all the boxes. It's a really a great fit. And actually one of them uh, became one of the original investors in the fund. So he gave me a hundred thousand uh, to invest. And I said, you know, uh, I told him, Jim, uh, you know, you don't really know me. He said, no, Monish, I know you really well. I cracked your head open. I know what's in the head, inside your head. So I know you really well with this money. And he did. He did very well. With As an entrepreneur, when you started your business, I've heard you mention on several podcasts, this theme of entrepreneurship as arbitrage versus, you know, entrepreneurs are portrayed as, as these people who love risk and they love to take risks. And you've sort of turned that on your head as both an entrepreneur and, and an investor that um, the best investors learn how to take the least amount of risk possible. Uh, and so maybe talk a little bit about that in, in context of when you started your business, like what, what were you arbitraging, um, if anything, and then how you sort of carried that also into your investing business and how you think about that in terms of investing? Yeah, I think uh, if you separate uh, startups into two categories, uh, 
uh, venture-backed startups and non-venture-backed startups. Um, venture-backed startups probably represent less than one-tenth of one percent of startups. There are probably maybe a million businesses a year that get started in the U.S., maybe more. In fact, I heard that during COVID, uh, in, tw in 2020, actually, the number of businesses getting started is higher than normal, uh, which we wouldn't have figured, but that's what's actually happening. Um, and um, probably less than 10,000 businesses, maybe even less than 1,000 businesses a year are venture-backed businesses, new venture-backed businesses formed every year. So most part, we can ignore venture-backed businesses. They are such a small part of the equation that we can ignore them. The non-venture-backed businesses that uh, people start, um, the entrepreneurs who start them, for the most part, are not interested in taking risk. They, they want free lunches and they want to minimize risk. So let's say there's a, a Chinese company and they want to start a Chinese restaurant. And you know, they, they want some good cooking skills and some good you know, kind of service skills and they're looking to start a Chinese restaurant. Well, the first thing they're going to do, they're trying to, going to figure out where do we put this restaurant, right? And what they're going to look for, I mean, the two or three things they're going to try to figure out is where are we going to put this restaurant? What kind of food and dishes are we going to offer? And what price point are we going to be at, right? These are the two or three things that'll go through the head. And as they figure out the food that they're good at making and the price point that is likely to work, all that will be centered very heavily on a location uh, where they perceive competition to be low. So anytime you open a Chinese restaurant, you will compete with non-Chinese restaurants um, indirectly, but you will directly compete with Chinese, other Chinese restaurants. So what you ideally want to do is locate it in a place uh, where there's no competition, right? Um, and so that's what entrepreneurs try to do is they, they try to find offering gaps and then they kind of step into those offering gaps. And when they, if they are right about the offering gap um, and they, they provide good services, that business has a decent chance of, you know, scaling and, and getting, getting ahead. So the bottom line is that, uh, that's kind of classic arbitrage, right? You have two towns, they're, let's say, 20 miles away from each other. Um, between the two towns, there's a third township emerging, but there's no Chinese restaurant in the third town, but they are in the other two towns. Probably locating it in the third town might be better than the two established towns. Because over time, what happens in our economy is through the creative destruction forces of capitalism, uh, supply will match demand for the most part. So I live in Irvine, California. Probably the growth in Chinese restaurants might resemble the growth in the population, you know, because it's a, it's a mature place and there's a lot of players and so on. So, and this is what entrepreneurs do in industry after industry. So when I when I started my IT firm, uh, I had the same 
uh, thought as the the couple that wants to start a Chinese restaurant. So what I ask myself is that what are the offering gaps, and is there an area where I can have an offering where I have competence uh, and not too many people are um, in in the business. And uh, and when I first started the business, that offering gap was in uh, what is something known as client server uh, consulting services. At that time, uh, there, a lot of big companies were transitioning away from mainframes and more toward uh, uh, kind of a clients of architecture. But I'll give you a kind of fun example of this arbitrage, uh, where actually my uh, um, investing life intersected with my, my entrepreneurial life. So I had uh, I had started this company in 1991, and I heard about Warren Buffett in 1994, and I think it was around 94 or 95 that because my my business was in technology at that time, I used to look at a lot of software and tech companies to see if there were businesses that you know might make sense in the portfolio with a Buffett lens, right? And um, at that, that time I found, uh, I found a company uh, called PeopleSoft. And PeopleSoft made uh, HR software for large companies. And, uh, but when, when a large company, let's say Boeing, bought PeopleSoft, they needed quite a large number of consultants to implement and integrate that because their own business was kind of unique and they had to make this software fit. Um, so if you were McDonald's, you had different HR needs, HR software needs than Boeing. And each company would bring in, you know, system integrators and consultants to help them integrate this. So what I noticed about PeopleSoft was that they were growing really fast. They were growing like more than 50, 60% a year. And I said, wow, I think they, these guys have a mousetrap. Uh, uh, kind of like Snowflake nowadays. You know, the Snowflake IPO, you know that Snowflake is on a rocket ship. Its revenues are going crazy and they're just scaling. And I don't know, less than a billion in revenue and more than 60, 70 billion market cap. Um, so I said, you know, uh, I really can't buy PeopleSoft because even though I can see it has a lot of growth ahead, there's also a lot of euphoria in the stock price. It's it's like everyone's excited. It's like kind of like buying Snowflake, not quite that that uh, that extreme, but it was it was I think north of a 40-50 PE, you know, trading pretty high. But I said that if if PeopleSoft is growing that fast then the consulting services associated with PeopleSoft have to also be growing really fast, okay? And which means that there has to be a shortage in the market of, so there has to be a shortage of qualified firms that can implement PeopleSoft solutions for large companies. And if there's a shortage of those firms, it means you can charge really high rates and if you have a team, they'd just be busy all the time. You'd be 
really good. So I said, you know, the way I can take advantage of my knowledge that PeopleSoft is growing fast is not by buying the stock. Uh, the way to take advantage of it is to create a PeopleSoft consulting practice. Because I said, lo and behold, I actually have a firm which does consulting and I can add in PeopleSoft into that firm. But it wasn't so easy because I barely knew how to spell PeopleSoft, right? I had no expertise. So I knew that I would have to build a, what they call a practice. And to build a practice, I need to bring in what I would call a practice director, uh, someone who was a kind of a heavy hitter, project manager, understood PeopleSoft, all of that. And uh, for me at that time, and this is about 25 years ago, to bring in that type of a person into my company, um, I'd probably have to offer them maybe $300,000 a year, guaranteed, you know, whether we made money or not. But I said, you know, uh, why don't I do this? I said, we are, our profits are way more than 300,000 uh, in our other businesses. Why don't I look for a PeopleSoft practice director and take a risk and, you know, commit the three or 400,000 to bring this one guy in. And then from there we can scan grow and see what happens. So I found, I found a phenomenal guy uh, who, uh, looked great. He had very strong project management skills, um, had, you know, done large implementations and all that. And uh, uh, we offered him around 300,000 and he accepted our offer. And he was going to start in three weeks. And I didn't know what I would do with him in three weeks. Okay. It's like you kind of bring in a picture and you don't really have a spot for them and you want to figure it out. Right. And um, so about a, about a week before he was going to start, he calls me and says, uh, you know, the, uh, the company I'm consulting at for this, uh, with this other consulting firm uh, doesn't want me to leave. They want um, my new employer to provide PeopleSoft consulting services to them. So he said, uh, he said, uh, uh, so I, I said, Paul, um, um, Paul asked me, you know, can I, is it possible that I can provide services to them? So I said, um, what would they pay us? Or what are they currently paying for your services? So he says um, about $400 an hour. Okay. So he would be used full time, which means, the billing on him would be about 800,000 a year. And our cost would be maybe 300 or 350,000. So I told him, Paul, yeah, you can go ahead and tell the client, we can sign a contract and you can go to him. So he didn't spend even one day, um, you know, basically overhead for us, right? Before he started. And then two days later, he called me and said, um, you know, the client, they need about, they really need about eight people under me to run this thing. And uh, they're asking if we can provide, provide all the resources. So I said, Paul, um, 
do you know some people's top people we can hire? He says, yeah, I got a bunch of friends. I said, um, why don't you hire eight of them? Okay. And within, within a couple of weeks, he had, he had brought eight people to us. We hired them. And each of them got billed for like $300 plus an hour. And their costs were much lower to us, maybe $150,000 or something. And um, so what happened is that suddenly, out of nowhere, we were going to make multi-million dollar revenue every year with some pretty significant margins. We didn't invest a dollar. The only thing I invested in was a letterhead to send him an off. Okay, that was my, my invested capital was $5. Okay, just the, just the letterhead to make the offer to him and to bring him for an interview and that sort of thing. That's it, right? So, and, and then the people saw practice took off. I said, wow, this is great. This is like you do your stock research. And then what I started doing is I just started looking at companies, software companies, which were at nosebleed valuations, okay? Because the more nosebleed the valuation was, the likely situation was the more on a rocket ship here they were. So I looked at companies which had this massive growth trajectory, but they needed services. And these companies themselves, they weren't able to keep up with having their own engineers and services. So anyway, so what I'm saying is that that was an example of arbitrage because we found these offering gaps. I was able to even learn. It's kind of like the Chinese couple learning how to cook Mexican. Okay, that's, that's what I had to do, right? I knew how to make Chinese food, but now the demand was for Mexican food. So I had to learn how to be a Mexican chef. And we did, we figured that out and uh, kind of went from there. That's, that is an awesome story. I was gonna ask you sort of a follow-up question that you sort of answered, maybe we can sort of repackage it a little bit, but so if you take all take out the, the venture-backed uh, startups or the venture-backable startups, the 0.01%, and you have you know the service businesses, more of the um, uh, more traditional startups, not non-tech or even tech-related, but maybe they're just service-related, sort of similar to yours. Then when you sort of segment those into two, two categories, I guess the way I would look at it would be there's one category that are scalable and then there's one category that's more of like a niche, right? So like maybe the the Chinese business would be, you know, kind of a niche. Now, maybe that that is scalable. It's a unique concept or there's just an offering gap for a particular type of food. But <clears throat> I think you sort of answered it. But I'd be curious today, uh, are there any industries that might lead themselves better towards the scalable non-venture startups. Yeah, Does so that actually, make sense? Most entrepreneurs, almost all non-venture back entrepreneurs, for the most part, uh, when they start, they don't think they've got a scalable business. So for example, if I, now, if you go to the very early days of Facebook, okay, like, there in the dorm in Har at Harvard. Um, it was originally limited to students at Harvard. It was just a way to connect students at Harvard. Then after that, they opened it up to other Ivy League schools. And in their mind, Facebook was just for Harvard students, 
then just for Ivy League students, then they opened up to more students. It took them a while to realize that this can go global with every age group, okay? And the same thing with, if you look at a company like Uber, so these are scalable things, but if you look at the original vision of Uber, San Francisco is a, is a place which horrible cab service. I mean, I used to go to San Francisco before there was Uber. It's just terrible because the thing is, you'd have to call for a cab. There was no way the city would really hail a cab. In most of the places, there were no cabs like kind of driving around Manhattan or something. So you had to call for a cab and uh, the, the cab company would put out a general broadcast. Someone's at 7th Street and, you know, whatever. And whoever can make it go there, okay? And nobody may go there, okay? It's not like Uber where they've told a guy you're going there, okay? So uh, whenever I go to San Francisco and if I, if you rented a car, it was terrible because parking was terrible. And if you relied on cabs, you were also hosed. So the, the, the motivation for Uber came out of the frustrations of San Francisco. Uber was like a perfect answer. And it started out actually as a high-end car service only in San Francisco, okay? So they didn't have the vision. Uh, and you can go on and on. You can just go across the board at many, many businesses which started uh, that, um, I mean, you look at the early days of Microsoft, uh, they're making a compiler for basic language, New Mexico, just a bunch of nerds who'd want to buy that, that kind of stuff. Okay. And that was the, that was the limit of the vision of that company, you know, and, and, uh, so on. So, uh, so very, very few businesses, um, actually with the non-venture backed, um, I mean, uh, you, you've seen the movie, uh, The Founder, you know, which was the story of McDonald's, right? And, you know, the, the two McDonald brothers, you know, they, they were kind of running a very successful business, but that's how they saw it. And the other guy, Ray Kroc, comes in and he actually sees that this can scale and grow and whatever, and then he, you know, goes and executes that. Most, uh, most businesses, uh, just don't have that view when they start. You know, eBay was just, oh, you know, some people want to exchange stuff. You know, that's what the original, you know, uh, Amazon, oh yeah, I think it's, this is a better way to sell books because we can put more books than a bookstore. Okay, that was the extent of the vision, right? That our bookstore is, and, and you know, his original tagline was Earth's biggest bookstore, right? So the whole whole focus for several years was only books, right? So uh, very, very few businesses. And these are, these are some of these are venture-backed business examples, you know, where they're supposed to have a brand vision, uh, but they didn't, you know, and so it takes a while. Most businesses uh, start out as arbitrage and they stumble into something that is, I mean, I would say if you look at, even if you look at, something like Apple with the iPhone, a lot of the success they stumbled into it. I mean, Steve Jobs did not want to set up an app store. He wanted to control the iPhone. He didn't want third-party apps coming 
coming in and you know messing with his ecosystem. I mean, Apple. Look at Apple's revenues on the App Store now. I mean, it's it's it's, it's crazy. Yeah, and so and it didn't exist. It wasn't part of the part of the game plan. You know, even when Google got started with search in a um, for a couple of grad students at Stanford. Um, Google is very interesting because the founders never figured out how to make money. They just had search. They knew how to do search well. They had no idea how doing search is actually going to pay the bills. So they they asked one of their employees, uh, uh, I think this Persian guy, hey, uh, why don't you figure out how we can make some money off this? And that guy figured out AdWords and AdSense, which you know took off like crazy. So uh, you know, I think uh, the most most businesses, venture backed or not, generally have a pretty small vision when they start because they're focused on the. Well, I think, yeah, that's a and that's. <clears throat> You make great points there. And I think this is a, a perfect segue into sort of this section on investing that, you know, a few questions that I'd love to pick your brain about the idea of arbitrage. Is that how you view your investments through this idea of arbitrage? Um, I've heard you say that, you know, you love buying dollars for 50 cents the classic Buffett, early Buffett investor, the classic value investor. Um, but recently, you also mentioned that now you're trying to find, uh, you know, more hidden compounders. So, 50 cent dollars that are going to grow at 20, 30, 40% a year. Um, how does, how does this idea of arbitrage fit into your investment framework? And then we can, we can hit some other questions, maybe a little bit more specific. Let me take a little detour before I answer that question. Um, okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to the, the arbitrage question in a second. So for most of my investing career, I would say from, uh, maybe the last 20 years or so, 21 years, the model I followed was uh, buy at 50 cents or less and sell at 90 cents or more. Okay. And hopefully in, if, if that convergence took place in two to three years, even if the pie didn't grow, um, if you bought at 50 cents and sold a dollar within three years, you'd make 25 plus percent a year. So very healthy return. Um, and if that, if that gap converged in a year, you'd make hundred percent. Right. And, and, uh, and so, so, so I, I felt that that was a, uh, a very robust model and, uh, that model worked quite well. It worked quite well for most of the last two decades. What I, I think 2020, most people think of 2020 as a year they'd like to forget. They'd like to, they'd like to just wipe 2020 off their memory map. You know, can we just do a do-over? Like go from 2019 to 2021, you know? Um, for me, actually 2020, uh, has been a year of incredible learning, and it's been uh, I'm I'm really grateful, and I've I've gone through uh, learning that I would say 
almost matches the learning I went through when I first heard of Munger and Buffett in uh, 1994. You know, that time I learned a lot about value investing and all that. So the, uh, uh, the thing I learned in 2020, which appears really simple, but it was a huge leap for someone like me, is uh, don't, don't sell a business, especially a good business, just because it's gotten fully valued or even somewhat overvalued. So if you find yourself in the, in the good fortune of having ownership of a good business, or partial ownership of a good business, um, what you should be willing to do, and the def, part of the definition of a good business is that it's got very stable um, revenues and future and probably has growth uh, and you know, value creation going on in the future, right? So if you find yourself in the good, good, good position of owning a portion of such a business, um, don't sell it just because it's fully priced or don't even sell it when it's overpriced. So if you think it's worth a hundred million, for example, and it's trading at a market cap of 120 million, for example, the old Monish would have been looking to sell it after 90 million. Okay. The new Monish is saying, uh, don't worry about this temporary uh, overvaluation. Uh, give it some, give it some room. Now, if it gets egregiously overvalued, um, I mean, say if you look at something like Snowflake, you look at something like Tesla and so on, uh, it's possible that even those are fairly valued, but at least in my limited brain, I don't think they are. Uh, so, you know, uh, those would be what I would call egregiously overvalued. You know, Salesforce, com to me egregiously overvalued. Google not egregiously overvalued. Facebook not egregiously overvalued. Um, Microsoft not egregiously overvalued. So you know you can start separating them. They are probably all of the between somewhat moderately overpriced and ridiculously overpriced. You can start separating those. So if they're moderately overpriced, ignore it. And, uh, and the thing is that the key in this game is having these great businesses that go up 20, 30, 40 times in value over a few decades, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years, they're worth 20, 30 times, 40 times uh, what they were. And, uh, and one of, the, one of the reasons I took this uh, buy at 50%, sell at 90% approach was because actually when I first started investing in 94, I didn't have this 50-90 model. Um, I was actually at that time willing to let it run. It's just that in 2000s, the early 2000s, uh, the book that came out by Maggie Maher, it's called Bull, uh, B-U-L-L. 
And Maggie pointed out how there were these super cycles in the stock market where um, the, the Dow was completely flat from 1965 to 1982. Like it was like 800 something in 65, it was 800 something in 82. 17 years, huge growth in the US economy, the Dow was flat. And the reason it was flat is that in 65, it was ridiculously overvalued. And by 82 here, it had become ridiculously undervalued. Then from 82 to 99, the Dow went crazy. It went from 800 something to like 12,000. Okay, it just went crazy, right? You made massive amounts of money. And my, my guess was when I looked at where valuations were in 99 and 2000, that I thought 1999 to 2016 would be another flat period. And so I said in, in uh, investing in a, against a backdrop where the index is gone, not going to do anything, uh, you've got to be smart about what you're buying. The compounders won't really help you. Most compounders won't help you. So for example, if you bought Microsoft in 2000, um, until 2016, your return was zero. So 16 years, not only was it zero, it was a very violent rise. It went down a lot by 2003. Then it started to recover and then again went down a lot in 2008, 2009. So you would have had a really, really bumpy ride. It would have been really hard to hold Microsoft. Now, uh, and the company grew a lot in that period. So same thing with Coca-Cola, uh, same thing with a lot of these high flyers, GE and so on. So a lot of companies were, so we had a dot-com boom going on in 99, 2000. Ignore the dot-com boom. I'm just talking about great blue chips. Great blue chips did not do well in when they were coming off euphoria. So in my mind, what I was thinking in 99 was, or 2000, that till 2016, 2017, markets a whole. So I said, Monish, you know, you have the worst timing for starting a fund. I was starting a fund in 1999. I said, you're going into a major headwind. Right, because you're starting at this. Crazy it's about like starting a fund right now. Yeah. Uh, well, now you got head. Uh, now you got tailwinds. So what I assumed was 99 to 2016, flat market. 2017 to 2034, incredible markets. And then 2034 to 2051, terrible markets. Okay, the 17-year cycles of what Maggie had. And actually, it's working out almost exactly the way the book predicted. Okay, so the book got written in 2002. Markets didn't do anything till 2016. And I would not be surprised if this run that we are into right now with low interest rates and all this stuff goes into past 2030. So what will, in my opinion, what is possible uh, is that by somewhere between 2030 and 2035, the Dow may be at a quarter million. Okay, you know how the Dow is less than 30,000 right now? It may be at a quarter million. It may be over 200,000 by then. Okay, and because, but then also what will also be the case at that point is 
things will be ridiculously overpriced. And then next 17 years, terrible ride. Okay, flat again. So, so I was thinking that I actually used to hold compounders for a long, for the long run when I started in 94. 94 to 99, those compounders were still rising. And in that period, I picked up 200 bankers. There are two companies in my portfolio that I captured 100x. In one case, I captured 140x. Uh, I only invested 12,000. 12,000 became more than 1.4 million. Okay. And uh, the other one, actually, I did, I did better because I invested close to 100,000, and that became close to 10 million. Um, so they radically altered my net worth. But I stopped doing that after 99, 2000 because of partially because of Maggie's influence uh, and partially because I thought that it was going to be very risky to hold on to these compounders, especially if they were already fully priced. Um, so I feel that if I had gotten the lessons I learned in 2020, around 2017 or 2016, that would have been perfect. So I lost about two or three years of wandering in the wilderness. But now I found my way again. So what I, what I realized is that um, not to sell a business. So two or three things I learned in 2020, which I think are very important lessons for me. So number one, focus on the great businesses. Focus on the compounders. That's where the holy grail is. Number two, um, and this is, I think, for, for Monish, this works. I'm still not capable of paying up for these businesses. So I'm never going to be able to invest in a high flyer. Okay. I have to find them at a value price. What I think I can handle is not selling them when they get, you know, over a hundred cents on the dollar. And so the, the lessons I've learned in 2020, which I think will uh, be very valuable lessons in the next uh, decade or more, is um, focus on the compounders and then just sit on your ass. You know, let them run. And let them run beyond intrinsic value. And, but don't let them run to egregious levels. You know, there's, there's those... Those are good problems, trying to figure out which is egregious, which is not. Uh, so I'm sorry, so your, your question was about, uh, just repeat the question for me for a second. On arbitrage, on your idea of arbitrage, you know, for entrepreneurship as it's applied to investing. And to me, it seems like that lesson that you learned in 2020 was this idea that it's more like time arbitrage. It's, it's actually even straight arbitrage because if a company is going to grow a lot, that's what we want, right? We want a lot of growth. By definition, they are going to have um, an unfair advantage. So they will, they, they will have an offering gap that they are focused on fulfilling. So for example, we, let's say Airbnb, right? Airbnb is just getting started, okay? 
I mean, it's a global company. They've got all these listings, but it's going to grow a lot. Okay. And who's going to enter their space? So this is the business with network effects, right? The people list with them, the more people want to use them, more people want to list with them, more people want to use them. And some guy who comes up with a better website, cheaper service fees, whatever else, will not be able to touch this moat. It's like when eBay got critical mass with network effects, Jeff Bezos wanted to create an auction business. And he told eBay, I'm going to kill you guys. And actually, if you look at eBay, you go on their website, the technology sucks. Okay. You go on the eBay website, the technology is terrible. You go on the Amazon website, the technology is great. Okay. Even with Jeff Bezos, and even with all the resources Amazon has, they were not able to take eBay out. And the reason they couldn't take eBay out, because eBay already had network effects. So, so the thing is, in these, in the, the businesses that we're looking at, which have these growth engines, they have built-in long-term arbitrage advantages where no one else can come into their space, right? I mean, they, 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 there's an offering gap. Nobody else can come into that offering gap. And so the arbitrage idea is an important idea because generally speaking, if the business does not have a strong competitive advantage because of the, this arbitrage idea, it's not going to grow. And, and so therefore, I think you have to hone in on why the growth is a given. Why is it going to happen? You know, and, and, and once, once you can figure it out, then it can work out. Yeah, that's a great point, and and I think that uh, it it sounds like to me that this arbitrage idea ties in well with with competitive advantage and and moats. Um, you mentioned a couple of names earlier, Snowflake and Tesla, and and obviously I've gotten counsel. You know, we're not going to talk about current stock picks or investments, but um, it seemed like those two were not current stock picks. I don't own either one. So okay, nor do I have any plans. Nor do I have any plans to put in any buying orders. <laughs> Okay. All right. We've gotten that out of the way. So maybe, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of them. Which one might have more of an arbitrage opportunity, uh, a competitive moat, like Snowflake, for example, uh, very capital light and has built a product that is obviously crushing it um, and is, is built on top of Microsoft, Google, and Amazon's yeah, so uh, I think, cloud I think, services. I think with, with Snowflake, uh, the best I can tell is it's outside my circle of competence. I, I have talked to several people and have tried to understand exactly what Snowflake is. And I'm fuzzy on it, okay? And I'm a tech guy, okay? So I understand the cloud offerings. I vaguely understand what these guys do. And what I, what I definitely don't understand is the sustainability of what they do. Uh, so uh, and 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 we'll have to see we have we have to see kind of um, um, who else enters their space. So I would say that you know uh, the thing is most companies fall into the too hard pile, uh, not just 
Tesla and Snowflake? I mean, the thing with Tesla and Snowflake are that the first question I ask myself is, is the business within my circle of competence? And I can maybe say yes for Tesla, but it's definitely a no for Snowflake. Okay, so the first thing which would eliminate at least one of them is a circle of competence issue. Then the second issue, if I look at something like Tesla, is if it's within a circle of competence. So first of all, I think that we live in an amazing time. Uh, we live in the time of Elon Musk, uh, which is really exciting. I would just say this, that any guy or any company, any, any guy really who can land rockets backwards simultaneously, I wouldn't want to short that guy. Okay. I would never short a guy like that. Okay. So I, what I, what I know for sure is whatever I do with Tesla, I would never short it. I, I would never short any stock, but I would never short a stock of a guy who lands two rockets backwards. And uh, did you listen to their battery day? The battery day. I read some highlights on it. Yeah. yeah so the, I think the battery day presentation is worth watching. I mean, if, if I am a car company, I'd be scared. Uh, because the other car companies don't have a physicist focused on first principles going into the bowels of the batteries. Okay. And, and uh, so Elon's a very peculiar guy. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of advances in batteries in 100 years. Uh, what was the state of the art in batteries maybe 70, 80, 100 years ago is what it is today. Hardly any change. Um, I think if anyone can move that trajectory, it's Elon. Um, and, and so uh, uh, Tesla could could become a lot larger. So far in the last eight or 10 years, Tesla's been cranking. None of the large OEM players with billions of dollars at their disposal and all the resources have been able to come up with a product that's even half as good as Tesla's. I mean, the Model S is so old now. They don't even have anything that more matches the original Model S. And so the, the OEMs are really behind the ball, right? And, um, and they may catch up, who knows? So my take is that uh, it's entirely possible Tesla is not overvalued. If they grow into this valuation with huge growth, ahead. it's possible that could happen. Uh, you've got a maverick at the helm. Uh, but both companies easily fall in the too hard pile. For me. Because what we want to make we want to make obvious no-brainer bets. Uh, in one case, it's outside competence and trades at, I don't know, 100 times uh, uh, revenue or something. Um, and, uh, uh, or maybe at least 40 times revenue. And uh, the other one is also very richly valued, uh, but we just don't know. And, the dangerous thing of someone like Elon is he doesn't really care about money. You know, he's not financially driven. He is driven with a completely different set of factors. You know, uh, like he says, he wants to die on Mars, just not on impact. You know, so um, I wouldn't want to compete with a guy like that. 
I think uh, I think it's it was Charlie Munger that said, you know, beware of of somebody who who thinks a lot of themselves because you just don't know how much they can accomplish. Yeah, he said, don't don't underage, underestimate a person who overestimates themselves. Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, and I think this is the this is the perfect case. I think uh, I, so. I read a, a, an article one time about Stan Druckenmiller, who someone was pitching Tesla as a short, and he said basically in two seconds, I said, "Have you seen this guy's product? You know, terrible balance sheet, great product. You know, get out of my office. I'm not shorting the stock." Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think shorting. I think the the Tesla shorts. Oh, they're I think they're in a world of hurt. And they might be for a while. I yeah, I've never shorted a stock, never plan on it. Uh, famous last words though, a, a friend of mine uh, who was also a baseball player. Um, his name's Alex Soleil. I'll give him a shout out. I told him, I said, look, this stock is a stock you hold forever, and it's either going to go to the moon or it's going to go to zero. My bet's probably on zero, but I hope that the guy succeeds. And those were my famous last words. I'll own up to it. So. I've never owned Tesla, but you know, kudos to those who have held on, and he's he's held on. He's uh, he's made a killing on it. So, well, I want to I want to wrap up our time together. And um, my one of my uh, favorite parts about you, Monish, is that you're very passionate, obviously, about investing, but also uh, your philanthropy. So maybe just set the stage, a couple minutes about what you do with the Dakshana Foundation, and then I have a few questions about uh, the you know governance and how you set that up and and your mission and goal there. Well, I mean, I think the. Uh my dad used to say, um, you know, we come to this world naked and we leave this world naked. And no one succeeded in taking a pin with them, uh, much less anything more than a pin, right? Uh, so in the end, whatever assets we all accumulate in our lifetimes, um, they all get left behind. And there's really only two things you can do with those assets. Um, you can give them to your gene pool, you know, and, you know, uh, give your gene pool a solid head start or whatever, and, or you could recycle back to society. And generally speaking, what, what I, what I learned from Buffett is that, uh, large inheritances are actually a disservice to your children. So Buffett has this quote. He says, I want to give my children enough money for them to do anything they want, but not enough money to do nothing. Right. And uh, so, so basically uh, Buffett equates the, the trust fund kids with no different from the wealth welfare recipients. They're both on an IV drip, you know, and uh, IV drips aren't the best way to go through life. Uh, so, if you're going to end up with more assets than you consume in a lifetime, it's probably a good idea to think about giving back to society. And um, I thought with the compounding, there was a decent chance I would end up with more assets. I, I recognize the pitfalls of trying to give it to my kids. Um, and so I wanted to start early because Buffett also said that giving money away is harder uh, than making it because you're limited to such few choices, you know, poverty and healthcare, environment, education, these are all really tough nuts to crack, uh, climate change and so on. And uh, so I, I started Dakshana when, um, when I was uh, 42 
um, and uh, mainly because I didn't want to start when I was 80. Uh, because if I started when I was 80, then the only thing I could do is write checks. I couldn't really do anything. I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do anything else. And uh, so I wanted to start early for a couple of reasons. One is I felt like it would take a long time to figure out how to do it well. And so I wanted to start experimenting with small amounts and build competence. Uh, and actually, as it turned out, and the second thing which I learned from Buffett is to set up a formula for giving. So what I decided, like the formula I set up was that if the net worth was over 50 million, I would give 2% a year, over 100 million, like 3% a year and so on. And those two or 3% numbers, hopefully I'm compounding at a higher rate. And so the, the net worth with absolute basis will still keep rising but there'll be meaningful amounts of experimentation going on uh, to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And uh, so these were some of the motivations behind Daksha. And I wanted it to be a, a very efficient organization, an organization that uh, delivered high social return on invested capital. And it's actually done all that. So we found a cause in India where we take these underprivileged kids, we blast them into the MITs of India, and uh, so they go instantly from zero to hero. We've, we've got some alums from Dakshana who work in Mountain View with uh, Google or in Redmond with, with Microsoft or Amazon and so on and so forth. And they came from families where the monthly income was less than $100 a month. So it worked, it's worked out uh, pretty nicely, better than I expected. That's awesome. And what you're attacking is uh, is sort of a combination of poverty and education or, or lack thereof. You're obviously a huge reader, and I'm going to share your, your book list on your website. Um, was that part of the reason why you wanted to sort of go down that route with education, or was it something else? No, I think I had, a, I had an experience with a cousin of mine where his kind of career was floundering. And I helped uh, uh, basically direct him into a one-year uh, course where he built some computer skills. And I got him a job with no pay where he would learn programming and his career took off. And so I realized that basically if you are able to just redirect some people with some skills into some specific areas, the in a capitalist system, they would be paid, they would they, they'd make it really well. And uh, India happened to have these state institutions, which were very heavily government subsidized, very hard to get into. But if you got into them, then uh, your life and income was set. So that's what we went after. We, we typically spend less than $3,000 per kid we take on over a couple of years. And the lifetime enhancement to their income is in the millions of dollars. So it's a huge, it's a huge return. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge return on on social invested capital, as you as you said earlier. I was looking through your your most recent um, the the nonprofit's annual letter, and I think you have like a threshold hurdle rate that you're trying to accomplish. Was it like seventy percent of the kids that you guys take in to try and you know enter into either the medical field or? Yeah, so basically the, yeah, I think like if you look at a place like Harvard, it, it admits approximately about 5% uh, 
of the people who apply. Uh, in India, the IITs, which are like the MIT of India, they they have like a one to two percent admit rate, and we have we almost always hovered over fifty percent, and we want to get it closer to seventy percent. That's that is an incredible incredible rate. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, if we are. What that shows is that we can we can find the right deserving kids, uh, then we can have the maximum impact on their lives. And what I love about this is it's it's arbitrage, right? Like you're finding the kids that that, that can obviously have you know, deserve that opportunity and can and can um, and can handle it, but may just not have the opportunity uh, for the coaching. So I I love that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's exactly what Dakshina does. Dakshina takes what I would call stranded talent and basically unstrands them, you know? So um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, that movie, The Middle Arm, you remember that the, where they were trying to find pictures in India? Uh, so, I mean, basically uh, what you, what we are trying to find is, uh, are there superstars who could be tomorrow's two superstars, but they won't make it if you intervene. Right, right. I, I love that. The last question I wanted to ask you on philanthropy, you've obviously you know, accumulated a significant net worth, which has allowed you to experiment and start this foundation. But for younger people who are similarly ambitious and would be interested in trying to give back to society, how hard would it be to, to set up a foundation like this, but... but help other people deploy their capital in a similarly meaningful way? Yeah, so I don't think, I don't think you should focus on setting up a foundation. I think a foundation really, uh, just from the compliance and uh, you know, overhead point of view, would not make sense till you were at least approaching of a half a million dollars a year going into the foundation, or at least a quarter million dollars a year, because it would cost a few thousand dollars a year just to administer it uh, with the rules and all that. So, uh, so I, I would not focus on creating a foundation. You can do that at some point. But the, but the thing is that giving can happen at $100 a year level, $500 a year level. So um, you now if you ignore tax deductions, so if I give my money to Red Cross, if I give them $500, I can get a deduction on my income taxes, et cetera. If I ignore that, okay, well, I don't really care about the deduction. Then I can look in my community and I can say, okay, can I help with supplies for a teacher in a classroom? Okay, or can I provide better internet access to some inner city kids, you know, would that help? So the thing is, it, it can be $10 a month, $50 a month. It can be a really small amount. And if you don't care about the deductibility, you're not limited to giving it to a foundation or a nonprofit. You could do it directly, right? You could look in your neighborhood and your uh, your uh, community and say, okay, uh, what are the needs and which ones seem to have the greatest payoffs, 
right? I mean, which wins win? I mean, so I think in general, my natural tendency has been to focus on education because you have a multiplier effect. But, you know, it could be helping environmental issues. It could be helping homelessness. There's a hundred different ways to help. And I think the thing is, uh, don't get hung up on the institutions and foundations and all of that. Uh, you can you can get going with none of it. That's a perfect way to wrap up. Monish, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been an absolute blast and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks again. Benton, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.